Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field building initiative and online community that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we are hosting a roundtable discussion with the Collective Impact Forum team where we are answering questions from forum community members, with this episode's focus continuing the topic of supporting anti-racism work, including how to hold difficult conversations. One reminder for listeners, for any resources referenced in this discussion, we've included links to those in the footnotes for this episode, so feel free to check those out if it's helpful. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for this discussion. Before we dive in, first, let me introduce our roundtable today. First, we have Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum, Jennifer Splansky-Juster. Thanks for being here, Jen. Thanks, Tracy. Hello, everybody. Next is Director for Strategic Partnerships at the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions, Sherry Brady. Great to have you here, Sherry. Thanks, Tracy. Good to be here. Next, we welcome Junius Williams, who serves as senior advisor to the forum, is principal of Junius Williams Consulting, and prior to that, served as president and CEO of the social impact organization, Urban Strategies Council. Thanks for being here, Junius. Good morning, Tracy and everyone. Thanks for having me. And please welcome senior advisor, Paul Schmitz, who is CEO of Leading Inside Out, as well as author of the book, Everyone Leads, Building Leadership from the Community Up, and is former CEO of Public Allies. Thanks for being here, Paul. Thank you, Tracy. Look forward to it. So for today's roundtable, we are going to continue the topic started in the last episode and go over more questions from forum community members on how to support anti-racism work in our collaboratives. For this episode, we will be focusing on some questions around how to hold hard, uh, how to hold hard conversations virtually, and then we'll hold some hard conversations ourselves as we dive into some big questions. And as mentioned in the last episode, we're focusing on this topic of supporting anti-racism because the root goal of collective impact work is to create positive social change and to do so collectively. And much of that change, much of our work, focuses on reducing inequality. That could be inequality in educational outcomes, inequality for economic development, or inequality in who in your community is set up to thrive. And much of that inequality, whether or not it seems apparent, is linked to racism in some form, especially here in the United States, where we here in this discussion are based. Racism and racist thinking has been baked into our systems and institutions and our own individual biases and internal mental shortcuts. If you do not feel as affected in your day-to-day work or life by these racist structures, they can feel unreal or hard to see or understand. And for other listeners, you may be deeply affected by these structures and the idea of not recognizing them can feel disheartening, very frustrating and scary. The existence of these racist structures, policies and thinking can further the inequality that we're all striving so hard to fight against within our collective impact work. So if one's goal is to truly support social change in your community and work, then taking a hard look at the systems around you, the institutions we work at, and our own personal behaviors and thinking will be necessary so we can understand what's preventing us from reaching our goals. How can we break down these racist structures and how can we really do the good work that we all want to do together? One final note is to say that we do not have all the answers. We're here to discuss, share our own experiences and learn from each other. And we hope some of the, what, the things that are brought up today 
may be useful for your own work. So to kick things off, we've gotten a lot of questions about how to do collective impact work virtually, and specifically, how to support the hard conversations that can be a big part of advancing equity and building trust and relationships. One specific question asked, talking about topics related to race, diversity, and equity is challenging enough in a face-to-face -face environment. How can we ensure sufficient safety and emotional support in a virtual environment? So for everyone here, when thinking about doing this work virtually and specifically holding space for hard conversations, what comes up for you? This is Jen. I guess I will start with, uh, this is on the more tactical side of things, but I think at least most folks when I talk to you, when you think about having these conversations with collaborators, think about doing so in a large group. So a whole working group or a whole steering committee. And while there are times and places for that, one suggestion would be to also have a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations or have conversations in smaller groups uh, where you can actually connect directly with people and understand their perspectives and have more of an intimate conversation rather than a conversation in a large group, which may be something where you have people across a different range of perspectives and can't really tailor or customize message to meet people where they are to move them along or to address their specific concerns or and understand their specific experiences. So one thing I was thinking about with this question is thinking really thoughtfully about when to have conversations with a big group and when conversations are more appropriate in smaller settings. And I, I, think, I think that's a good point, Jen, and I would just add on to that the, this layer of which of the multiple difficult conversations are you having? I mean, is it the conversation about implicit bias, which is sort of very interpersonal and personal, uh, where people hopefully will be engaging in some introspection uh, versus the larger structural systemic conversations that Stacy uh, alluded to? Um, and I think just situating which level of conversation people are about to have is important because I think it might dictate uh, different, as you label them, tactics. I think uh, on the interpersonal level, and I don't work in that level, I tend to refer that work to other people who are more skilled. Uh, but a couple things that do come to mind is one is and I wonder about this more generally, to what extent are employee assistance programs beginning to adapt to give people support around dealing with their racism and their, their bias? It seems to me that it is as legitimate as any other sort of mental health issue, and people who practice white supremacy and racism have mental health problems that need to be dealt with. So. I think a structural piece of where, where is the employee assistance support structure uh, around this uh, at either an organization or, or a collaborative level. And I think a second thing is, and you alluded to this again, Jen, is some partnering that people need. It's almost like you do with young people, but making sure everybody's got a buddy. And when you need to kind of have a more detailed conversation offline and away from the group, that you've created a structure in which uh, people know that's at least one place to go immediately when you need clarification or you need to you know, 
really dives down a little deeper into an idea of fear or concern? One thing that I, I, get, I struggle with sometimes is when we have the larger group conversations, sometimes we lean into being less controversial, quote unquote, controversial uh, in order to maintain whatever the group vibe is to move people forward. So and oftentimes that leans into white supremacy because because people because of fragility people might feel like they, they'll just not be able to contribute well if you start bringing in like really tougher topics related to anti-racism in the larger group when we do have such a when you do have a big uh, divide of experiences and do we, are there any suggestions around how to what are good ways to approach hold you know being able to dive deeper into some of those areas so you don't leave them behind while still trying to maintain the the larger group vibe I would suggest, um, and this is something, this is Sherry, sorry, that um, Junius talked about. I would suggest making sure that you have someone who's leading the, the training, the conversation, the facilitation, who's experienced in these issues. Don't try to sort of be like, our HR director who did one training on implicit bias is now going to lead this in-depth conversation on dealing with these issues. That's, that's just, that's setting yourself up for failure and it's not being honest about wanting to engage in the conversation. So really being thoughtful and careful about the facilitator and the person who's helping to lead that conversation because they have the skill set to do it. So I think that's an important piece because I think we have a tendency when the trainer is not deep into it to want to step back and avoid. Um, so I think that that's a big piece of what I would suggest. One, one thing I've been hearing is that from, from a few groups is that their conversations are able to go deeper than they have in the past because of what's been happening over the last couple of months, that their board members or donors and others are seeing the systemic problems at a level and in a way they might not have as clearly seen them before. And so I think there's, there, there's some opportunity. I know people have used uh, some of the, right, the weekly essays that PolicyLink's been putting out uh, in their race COVID revolution series. I know people have used, uh, I, I know one community foundation that used Voulet's article about whether white liberals were the, uh, whether philanthropy was the white liberals that uh, King talked about in his letter from Birmingham jail. I think that people have used some of these shorter readings, but more powerful ones that are of the moment as a way to kind of get people to start conversations that are a little bit different. And, and again, I, I, I'm still a strong believer in moving people into small groups. We can do that virtually. Also a believer in, you know, as Jennifer said, the one-on-ones. And I would, if I was working with group, I'd want to have like one-on-ones or small groups and then have the larger group conversation or some combination thereof. And, and I think to Junius's point that that link of people doing the internal work, which I think white people need to do. I think we need to be clear about our own biases, our own racism, our own, our, the journey we have to take. And I think we have to be connecting that to the larger change agenda and dealing with racist systems and structures. And so I think that doing that at both levels is important and probably more the introspective work needs to happen, especially in pairs and small groups and at the group level, really bringing it up to really analyzing our organizations, our systems and structures about 
how it's playing out and how we're contributing possibly to the racist outcomes that our, our communities and country have. I have to say, I can't believe that I didn't jump into the, to the text-based Aspen Institute. I'm sure they're going to take away my Aspen Institute work card. I didn't talk about starting with the text-based piece. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Oh, the Aspen way is definitely to start conversations with text-based resources to help guide people into converse, facilitate a conversation about whatever the topic may be. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stalwart uh, Aspen tactic. <laughs> and so, let's, let's read Aristotle and then talk yes. about uh, national defense. That's kind of the Aspen way. Exactly. How European. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I'll make sure not to tell anybody at Aspen and we'll encourage our listeners maybe not to, to, to keep it a secret. That's cool. And I, uh, for Genius, I really appreciate your point about re relating white supremacy to mental health. I think that's something we, I don't think is addressed enough. And I know for, for folks, sometimes pursuing any kind of support for mental health has stigma to it, but that's a, it's a really great frame to think about it. And I know also, we don't always talk about how the effects of white supremacy is very similar to the effects of, of, of physical and emotional and mental abuse, both for those who have been groomed into a white supremacy system and for those that are directly affected by it. And that's another thing to think about is that for anyone who is both been groomed into a system of abuse, that mental health support is very necessary in order to unpack it. So that's a really good point to think about. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and on that point, people might look at Dying of Whiteness, which was published last year, which provides some statistical evidence that um, racist attitudes uh, and belief systems have deleterious health effects. In fact, a suggestion that some of that behavior might also help to explain the decline in life expectancy in the United States, which is largely among white males have had the decline and uh, injury for firearms and uh, suicide and some other things that uh, are likely to be associated with that belief system. So, We've mentioned some really great resources, but just as a reminder for listeners, we will include these uh, links to these in the footnotes for this episode, so definitely check those out. All right, well, that was a great discussion around, oh, siren. Um, I'm just going to wait a second. Hey, we're in America. If you don't hear sirens, you've got to be pretty isolated. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it, Tracy. Okay. Yeah, well. not, I think it's louder to you than it is over the microphone. Yeah. It's just a little bit of a background noise over there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's good to know. I, I won't have to be like, listeners, I live one block from a fire station. So that was a really great example of, you know, really great discussion around how to start, how to tackle tough conversations virtually, because we're all virtual right now. We're over Zoom. And now we look forward to actually having some tough conversations because we've got some tough questions in from Collective Impact Forum members. We've gotten a few questions from folks who share that their work focuses on everybody affected by their specific focus. And because of that, addressing issues like racism or anti-Blackness doesn't feel relevant to them. So say, for listeners, say their one's work focuses on promoting child health or civic engagement or cleaning up a riverbed. Someone might say cleaning up a riverbed doesn't directly connect to race. Rivers touch everybody. So for everyone here, what comes up for you when you hear, my work doesn't need to address race because it addresses everyone? For me, it's the same thing 
uh, reaction and it's visceral when I hear people say in response to Black Lives Matter that all lives matter. But the other thing around it for me that's very important is that this is where you operationalize that language about the equity lens. It may in fact be that there are issues that are not impacted by race out there. I haven't run into them in my own life experience, but I haven't had the same life experience as uh, many folks of other racial and ethnic groups. But if you've applied an equity lens to your work and no matter what it is, you disaggregate it and you look at the data around opportunities and impacts and there are no disparate impacts for black people or other people of color or people in terms of gender orientation and all of, all of the sort of dimensions of diversity for which people might experience disparate outcomes, then that's fine for you to eliminate it. I've yet to find those issues. And that seems to be, uh, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic, I'm just being real. If those things exist, that's a really nice place that I aspire at one point in life to spend a little time there uh, and with those issues, because I haven't run into a lot of them that when you really dig down and look that there aren't uh, racial uh, sort of impacts or impacts along other demographic characteristics. I would add, I think there, you know, I, I agree completely that by disaggregating and looking to where there are disparities in your community, it's hard not to find them. There are communities that are more homogenous and, and, and it's possible uh, that they don't. But then at another level, the systems and structures of racism nationally impact that work. Uh, so many issues around poverty in the United States, around justice, around other things that, affect, mm -hmm. that do affect everyone are the way they are because they've been racialized. You know, welfare as, as a concept was racialized uh, in the 70s. The ending of, of, of that program didn't just affect one group of people, it affected anybody who needed benefits. And I think there's so many other policy issues in justice, in anti-poverty work in education, et cetera, that have been racialized. And so the reality is that to understand the systems and structures you need to address to help the, whatever people you're trying to help, you need to understand how the systems play out and how policy plays out. Mm -hmm. If I take my state in Wisconsin, a lot of the coded language used in our legislature about Milwaukee <laughs> is, is racialized language, yet those policies they pass limit economic, educational, and health opportunity in rural white areas and in all parts of the state. But they don't talk about those when they attack it, they talk about Milwaukee. And so you have to, one, recognize how this plays out at a structural and systemic way and at the same time, really get real about what the data says about your community and if there is othering in your community. If you are so homogenous that it's, it's not there, then it's, again, I think being real about how, why you need to be an ally in the struggle because uh, of the way it impacts the, the policies that affect the issues and people you are working with. Related to this topic, we received a question around whether to choose a stronger visible platform around race versus staying visibly neutral. And the question specifically asks, 
veterans includes all genders, races, and beliefs. The thing that they connect over is the military. So do, so do we stay neutral during these protests or should we start conversations with black community leaders? So for the group here, if an organization is struggling with whether to present a neutral presence and to not specifically call out support for the protest to support black lives, what recommendations might you have for them to think about? For me, it's a similar, re this is Sherry, for me, it's a similar reaction to um, Janice had about the previous question in the sense of, you know, are you really asking yourself how the military treats black soldiers? Um, I think there's a history of, um, of that. Um, our benefits, you can talk about sort of historical ways that the GI Bill, which was on its face, was race neutral, really was um, implemented in a way that impacted soldiers of color, especially black soldiers being able to buy houses and, and it's had a long-term impact on black families going forward. So I think that there is still a need to address this because these systems are built in inequity and racism is baked into the systems in most systems in the United States. Um, I have a friend who we talk about this often because he's military and how, you know, everyone had to be treated the same way in the military. But that's not, but that wasn't always the case in the beginning. And I still think that there are places where that might not be the case. And so I think that you really have to think about how folks in these areas, um, Black folks interrelate to the military. There's also a question that is a bigger question that more Black young people get pushed toward the military because they can't afford traditional education that I think has some issues around sort of how we need to think about our military. So I think it's, I still think it's disingenuous on some level to to say, well, they're all military, so that's what they have in common. We in the military treats everybody the same. It doesn't. They're still, you know, look at all the information too about how women are treated in the military and rapes in the military and um and all of those issues. So it just feels I'm having a hard time with that. <laughs> um, and so I would say that you really need to still need to dive into these questions and think about, and you don't necessarily have to come out and support the protest as an action if that's sort of but i think you really need to think about what they're asking you to think about and how your system interacts with different with bipoc folk or with with women and so i still think that that's a conversation that you need to be having yeah i think this moment is really calling on all institutions and organizations to examine their history examine the roots of these issues and to go deeper. And I think for a long time, we were trying to just, I can say working with a lot of groups, just getting them over that first hump to apply a lens and look at data was, 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 was a lot. I think now we're saying, now understand the root cause of that, understand how that data got to be that way. And really start to analyze the systems and structures and the work that you do that have produced that. And I think people are starting, are, are better ready to take that journey I don't understand what neutrality even means. Like, I don't know what it means to be neutral. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's there. I don't know if there's a space between being racist or anti racist Like, I don't know that there's this middle space where we just like pretend these issues aren't, 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 aren't there or avoid them. Um, and so I, I, I understand that the impetus behind that and the desire to kind of not wade into controversy but these times you know there's times in our history that call for us you know to do that this morning uh john lewis's his funeral is happening uh while we're recording this and 
he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And I think it, it, it again speaks to this thing of in this moment, at these times, I don't think there is a neutrality. I think he's calling on us all to step forward and step up uh, for our democracy, for our country, for racial justice, et cetera. So I, I don't understand the, the neutrality piece. And I just wanna say one other thing, which is last, the last time we, we recorded one of these, Junius talked about the difference being, between being an ally and a co-conspirator. And I, I, I've seen that as kind of a journey a lot of people uh, and myself included, need to keep taking is moving from just being an ally to being that co-conspirator. And I think that one of the things I lamented, and I'll lament again, is seeing in a lot of cities uh, taking up policies and bills to address racial inequities in their systems, to address the funding of police versus social services and things like that. And I'm not seeing a lot of collective impact efforts, community foundations, United Ways, or other organizations promoting or endorsing those platforms. And, and I would really love to see more organizations move out of neutrality in the policy space uh, at the local level, which isn't partisan. It's not partisan to say I support moving money from the police department to our public health department. That's not partisan. Uh, that's okay if you're a nonprofit. That's policy and you can advocate on that. And, and again, I just think that we have to I think we have to show more courage. And I think that, that to, 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 be, to move from allyship to co-conspirator to co uh, requires ramping up of courage. And I think being an ally requires courage and doing more requires more. But I think that we all have to be more courageous. And again, if we look at the example of, of Representative Lewis, you know, or John Lawson, who, who, who was eulogizing today and others, the immense courage they exhibited, I think there's a, a standard we can all try and reach toward. Yeah. And for me, whenever someone says that, uh, it infuriates me because it's like standing uh, outside a school building or a hotel uh, and it's engulfed in flame and you know people are inside. So there's a neutral posture around that of some sort, where, where's the neutrality? And I analogize that to where America is. Neutrality historically has gotten us to where we are right now because so-called good people from the founding of this country stood by and thought they could be neutral. And there's no neutrality. There was no neutrality around slavery. You either needed to be against it or you were a supporter of it. And I think that that extends to right now. So if you can find some space to be neutral uh, about this, and I know I would question your values because I can find no place around issues of race and the hist history of America that would condone someone uh, with any sense of humanity being neutral uh, uh, about it. The suffering and the long-term impacts have just been too great for you to stand by and somehow feel like there's some space to be neutral and not aggressively resisting the continuation of those structures and practices. Yeah, and just building on, building on what everyone has said, um, I was thinking about, um, Tracy, when you shared this question, a quote from Ellie Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor and activist who says, always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. 
silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And I just think that is spot on. So underscore everything my colleagues said. The other thing I just actually would add in the language of collective impact and the collective impact forum, I regret that there are times where he, we have said um, the backbone's role is to be neutral. Um, and we have used that language. And uh, that language I, I now realize is quite problematic uh, when it is applied in these types of settings. The backbone's role is to be an honest broker of conversation, but not to be neutral as to the outcomes and the work in community. And um, as we have all been saying, this is, this is the work that needs to be happening right now and is not a space for those convening the conversations to be neutral. Jen, that reminds me of my favorite quote, and I actually have it in my office on a, in a poster. The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in times of great moral crisis maintain their neutrality. It's from Dante. I take it, it's literally been in every office I've had since I found the quote, put it up. It just reminds me every day that that's the work. So one question that someone asked was about how to authentically center black voices when a foundation's governance is either all white, all white folks or all white dominant. And so there, I'm just gonna read out the, the question someone shared. So how can foundations with white governance, and they have in parentheses, that cannot be changed immediately or ever, like say a certain percentage of the board is family, et cetera. So how can a, a foundation with white governance genuinely center black voices in a way that is not quote unquote passing off responsibility or the task of doing the work, but in a way that celebrates, honors, and centers Black voices now and continually in the future. So is that something that is doable? Or can that, can that happen? I think, um, this is Sherry, I'll start. And I think that there are ways that you can do that, that includes things, especially thinking about foundations, thinking about having some funds, potentially putting aside some money that, that um, allows for community to, to be community grant making. Um, we have a lot of community, the Women's Foundation here, Washington Air Women's Foundation has a, a fund where the young women lead the grant making. Um, they talk about the, the, where the money should go and, you know, and speak to the groups that the money should go and talk about the, the organizations and the issues that matter most to them. So you could get a pot of money and, and sort of have those folks be the deciders of where the money goes instead of having yourself be the decider. And I also think it's, I mean, I, I question this idea about passing of responsibility. I'm not sure what that means. And it's not just about a task. It's about fundamentally thinking about how you change, you do your work. And I think part of the reasons that they, they, you know what I mean, in some of the ways they would need some evidence that these kinds of things work, but sort of you start with a small amount of money, you, you do it, you invite the community or your, the folks that you fund, the, the community that you say you care about, especially if you're in a place, you invite them to be a part of some structures, whether they're steering committees or working groups that actually are doing things and making decisions. It can't be sort of busy work and tasks. When you say passing off of responsibility or tasks, that also feels like busy work, which can be sort of a sign of, uh, it's a culture of white supremacy also to do busy work so that people feel like they're busy and they're actually doing something, but it's just sort of tokenizing. So don't do that, but you can really think about, are there structures, are there ways that some decisions can be made in a different way, not sort of maybe the governance of the whole organization, but this pot of money, 
these decisions, where we're going to go next, those kinds of things, and bring that community voice into that place in an authentic way. That's a good point, Sherry. And it makes me think, too, I don't know if you all saw the announcement around uh, this week around Mackenzie Scott, who's the former partner of uh, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, who just donated, I think, $1.7 billion as a start at, uh, to her philanthropy to around over 100 organizations. And in her Medium post, which we'll link to in this uh, footnotes, she shared about how, you know, the majority of the organizations were led by uh, people of color, all 100% of the organizations that were focusing on LGBTQ issues were led by LGBTQ people. And how, you know, that you could see that there was an intentional way with her philanthropy around supporting uh, affected communities. And also that her philanthropy was unrestricted funding from the outset and how important that is when supporting initiatives and doing the work is is having is removing a lot of those restrictions yeah it was large multi-year with the money given up front unless the organ if the organization didn't want to get it all up front they could choose not to but otherwise they got it all at once unrestricted and i think it was uh something like 83 percent led by people of color of the grants overall and so i i do think i i can't think of another foundation that's done something like that or a philanthropist who has put out that much money to organizations in big chunks like that, unrestricted, and really trusted groups with it and trusted their voices and leadership. And I know there was a lot of vetting behind that, but but kudos kudos to her for, for doing it differently, which a lot don't. I, I think that one of the key things in this is, is when I'm working with a group that doesn't have those voices already inside, you know, the, the question is, you know, how are you going to change yourself to bring them inside? And in the interim, are there, you know, consultants from the community? Are, is there an advisory group you can create? Are there partners you can form in the community? There, I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to do that. And I think the other thing is to just always remember that so often when you're in a large organization foundation, it's always about bringing people to your table instead of going to their tables. And I think another thing about centering is not centering it around you, but centering it around others and going out in the community and showing up at other people's things. And I spoke to a community foundation this week who has been doing racial equity work with their board and was really excited because a couple of their board members even in the midst of the pandemic, have been going out to meetings in communities of grassroots community groups. And these are kind of prominent, powerful people in that city and saying they've never even been to these neighborhoods. But I think showing up is a key part of it. And I think so often it's about kind of come and share your voice with us on our space. Instead, we're going to go listen to your voice in your spaces. And I think, you know, trying to move from, and, and I, it still has an us-them feel to it, but I think you're you're trying to create a we, but to create that we, you've got to like show up for other people and not just ask people to show up for you. Well, I would join um, in people's complimenting Mackenzie Scott, but it shouldn't absolve us from having a conversation about how in the hell does anyone accumulate $58 billion 
which is a quarter of supposedly in the settlement. So I don't want to lose. Yeah, that's great. And it's great <laughs> that she was so innovative in structuring it. But the underlying question with people not having enough food, not having shelter, how in the hell does somebody get allowed in this capitalistic structure to accumulate $58 billion of personal wealth? That's like the little few thousand dollars less than the few thousand dollars that I give away from my income. So, uh, Amen. so yeah, it's great that she did that. I'm glad that she had the sensitivity and the courage to kind of seek out and support organizations that often don't get that kind of advantage, again, because of the structural racism that funders somehow always see white people as being more deserving of investments for general operating and for building out organizations than black and indigenous and people of color uh, uh, ever experience to, to grow their organizations. The, the other thing I would say briefly about the, uh, I, I agree, Paul, there's something structurally wrong that you also need to think about your organization if you find yourself in the circumstances uh, that uh, are, are described. Uh, but I'm, I'm also, I'm also concerned, uh, and I believe very much and have in my own work tried to center on the circumstance of black people. But I would also say that I've been less sat than satisfied with my own ability in a couple of times where I've taken that to transition to the broader array of indigenous people of color, uh, all of the sort of demographics. And I would just say to folks based on, because we were a leader in the Black Male Achievement Initiative in Oakland, we helped to uh, incubate that in the organization that I was formerly involved in. Back in the day in Oakland, I was involved in the Black English movement. It's very important that people figure out how you transition from the necessary focus on centering on uh, the plight of black people to incorporate our multi-racial, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-dimensional uh, diversity and how you move to other groups. And I will tell you, uh, we had trouble because we didn't think that through and weren't able to always explain to people how we got from black males to the necessary getting to uh, Latinos uh, who suffered some of the same sort of disadvantages that b black males did. So I just say that I think that's important to do. I think it's more than just centering them and voicing their concerns, it's centering them in the decision-making as has been suggested. But I think that given uh, the nature of our diversity, we need to also consider what's the pathway uh, once we have sort of met the threshold set of issues to get to the other populations and apply the lessons and begin to address their specific historical and structural circumstances. Great points, Junius. And you also bring a great point um, that I'll expand past uh, the, great, the, the great giving that Mackenzie Scott announced this week. But you're right about for all all of all of those in philanthropy who got, find themselves in the 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 situation where they have billions of dollars and 
as grateful as we are when, when folks do a very intentional giving, how that really does push it forward. A very difficult question of how does that situation exist when we do have so much inequality, especially, which is very stark, I mean, which has always been stark, but is very stark right now during the, the ongoing pandemic and the economic downturn and the uprisings to support Black lives right now. And the inability of Congress to give people a lousy $600 a week supplement so they can feed their families and stay in their homes. It's unconscionable. Which is ending tomorrow, I think. I think that's, I think tomorrow is the last day. That's, yeah. yeah. You know. Well, on that note, <laughs> this has been a, a really wonderful, uh, a very thoughtful conversation. I really, I just, I really want to voice how much I appreciate you all and, and, and being in community and having these hard conversations over Zoom in uh, talking about things that are very nuanced, have a lot of layers and complexities and um, take time to dive into. So I really just want to appreciate you all. For listeners, we will be including, there's a lot of resources referenced in this episode. We'll include this in the footnotes, but for Sherry, Junius, Jen, and Paul, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Drake. Thank you. Thank you all. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, we've included information in the footnotes for this episode. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in more learning events, registration is now open for Champions for Change 2020, our virtual workshop that will be held on September 15th through 17th, 2020. This online workshop focuses on the role of the backbone in collective impact, and is especially geared for those in the early stages of their collective impact work. Although we're sad we can't be with you in person this year, one big plus for hosting a virtual workshop is that we're recording all the sessions and sharing those recordings with attendees after, so you won't have to worry about missing a session. You'll have access to them all. Check out our website at collectiveimpactforum.org for more information. And heads up, the registration early bird rate ends on August 7th. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.